This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're diving into the art world with two of its 21st century luminaries, Jeffrey Deitch and Massimiliano Joni. Deitch, a celebrated critic and curator, talks about his popular new book, Live the Art, which details his decades of boundary-pushing work in the galleries and museums of New York, California, and beyond. In a fascinating conversation with Joni, artistic director of New York's new museum, Deitch discusses innovation, creation, and his appreciation for spectacle. Hello, everybody. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello. Uh, thank you for being here. I'll, um, when I see such a crowd, I'm always reminded of a great joke by Erwin Panofsky, you know, that he said that the Germans, when they have to choose between going to paradise and a lecture about paradise, they would go to the lecture. <laughs> and uh, I guess New Yorkers are a bit like that. Um, <laughs> we are uh, going to talk a lot about Jeffrey Deitch. And uh, we're going to do it as an um, A to Z, uh, a sort of abecedaire. And um, so maybe we just start. And uh, I will start, um, because I'm Italian and still illiterate, I will not go in order. And I'll start from letter G uh, as gallery. And, uh, <laughs> well, we started the book with the sentence, Deitch Projects was not meant to be a gallery. I was very inspired by the project room at the Museum of Modern Art and Matrix Gallery at Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford, where I grew up, where instead of the conventional exhibition where an artist would bring in the 10 new paintings, you instead would say to an artist, what is your dream project? What do you really want to do that you haven't been able to do? And let's try to make it happen. And were there galleries that served as models for yes. Deitch projects? Yes. And you opened in 1996, okay. <laughs> no? Let's uh, well, set the scene. <laughs> Art and Project in Amsterdam. Regan Projects in Los Angeles. I was very inspired by a project that Stuart and Sean did with a kind of suburban-type house they gave to Richard Prince. That was a wonderful way to present an artist's work. And they were, uh, I, I think what distinguished your program early on was that uh, the gallery was a sort of gravitational force. It was not uh, just a place where uh, the public would come and see objects and artworks, but it was um, a, a sort of dispositive to create communities or to bring people together. And That's right. That was one of the objectives, to create a platform where a community could gather where artists, people interested in connecting with artists, where people could meet each other, and they did. And, and how did you build that, those communities? How did they come about? Uh, well, I think first you, you serve free drinks. That's <laughs> a, <coughs> after a while, that got out of hand. <laughs> we, <laughs> we had transitional period where we served glasses of water, but then we, we even dropped that after a while. 
but it's it's something that that was part of the intention to have an open platform. First, be friendly at the front desk, and uh, we're very happy when a magazine that some of you remember, Coagula, really a, 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 a vicious rag. Um, they, they gave us a lot of trouble, but they gave us an award our first year as having the best atmosphere of any gallery. So that was very important to us, that the people at the front desk actually made eye contact. They might say hello, and then pull up a chair. And so it really started right there, to be welcoming. and. I've always been interested in finding talent through communities rather than looking for that one special isolated genius. Look, where, where is there a community of interest? Where, where is something happening, connecting with that community? And we embrace those communities. And there are a number of them that we invited in during, during the year, but we invited whole communities, let's say, for instance, when we did the notorious nest exhibition, a whole community came with it. And they became part of the gallery community eventually. So we, we skipped already to letter N and nest. Do you want to talk about well, more? Let's say we should talk about our, our, uh, yes, our most outrageous exhibition. And so I hope that some of you were actually there, because uh, it's impossible to ever recreate. So I had heard that Dash Snow and Dan Colon had this project going when they would go to Miami Beach or Los Angeles, they would get a hotel room, not a hotel room, a motel room, and they would proceed to tear up all the phone books they could find in the hotel, motel, you know, create a kind of hamster's nest, and then just go for it. You know, anything went on. And you know, they were famous for trashing these rooms. And I saw a video that Dash had made after their nest in Miami. It was uh, incredible. And I said to them, we have to bring the nest to New York. We're going to do it in the gallery. They were reluctant because it was a more of a spontaneous thing. But we, they finally agreed. But our gallery, even though it wasn't that big, it still took a lot of phone books. <laughs> so first we, we ordered several thousand phone books, and we gotten connected with students at Pratt Institute. We got about 20 Pratt Institute students to sit around like all night shredding up phone books. And we you know, supplied pizza to keep them going. So this went on for about a week. And we just had like a little pile in the corner. It, it, it takes a lot. Because Dan was insisting it has to be hand shredded. You're, you know, you can't do it with a machine. It's not the same quality. <laughs> so finally he, he gave up and we got one of these gigantic shredding trucks that pulled up in front of the gallery and we ordered you know, like another 10,000 phone books and you know, they put them all through and finally we had the most beautiful hamster nest, which of course the artist proceeded to totally trash. I, I, but I had to be very careful, and so what, what we did is we set up these sort of monitors. Our most trustworthy art handlers were there to stay up all night, said don't drink anything, make sure nothing happens. Uh, two of our staff, I'm not sure they were the most trustworthy, but they were the ones who wanted to stay up all night, and I said to make sure, you know, you have to be cool. Of course, they all ended up participating. Um, it's a miracle that 
nothing bad happened because later I saw a photograph of Dash who I said, please, you gotta assure me you're not gonna smoke inside there. <laughs> and in triumph, as he finished, he took an acetylene torch and lit it. <laughs> like a try like you know, the Statue of Liberty in the middle of the hamster's nest. But it was an amazing thing, and the, the, the highlight of this is we had a kind of battle of the bands of airy weapons, who's really part of that scene, and my longtime heroes, the band Suicide, playing together, and everybody rolling around in the space with all the loose electrical cords and things. Uh, I'm not sure you have a letter B, Massimiliano, but one of the most important things to say is that we were blessed because we did so many crazy, dangerous things. No deaths. Uh, one little boy broke his arm uh, in the skate bowl on the last day, but that's about the only really negative thing that happened. <laughs> and the, luckily, the mother never sued us. <laughs> um, well, what you're saying makes me think of, a, of two letter S's, uh, one being Soho, because uh, I think your gallery was very much associated with, yes. with that neighborhood to the point that in a way you refuse to leave. Um, and the second is spectacle, which uh, is probably one of your great specialties and that often, as time went by, you, you, you were also criticized for it, for a sort of pa uh, passion or inclination towards spectacle. That's and right. So well, well, Soho first. So I love the artistic history of Soho. And I love the architectural history of Soho. And you know, also the history of Soho before the artists came as a no man's land where the gangs from Little Italy and the West Village would battle each other. Uh, I was lucky to move to Soho in 1974 when it was still Soho. Um, it, was, it was an amazing place. I came to New York City in 1974 not knowing a single person. And just being in Soho, working as a gallery assistant, Within a couple of months, it seemed like I knew absolutely everybody because every, it was all concentrated. People hung out on loading docks, and uh, I, I just loved it. And every evening, I would go to some performance, go to a club. Never had to take a taxi, almost never took a subway because it was all there in Soho. And uh, because of that history, because of my admiration, galleries like Leo Castelli and Ileana Sonnabend. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be part of that history. And I like that Soho also is in the, just in the middle of New York City's life. It's not, what it became is not an isolated gallery district. It's a real part of the life of the city. And when you moved there, I mean, you, you opened in 1996, so Soho was already changing or was, but That's how right. did that feed your community? I, I always thought even in the middle of the whole booming of the shops and so on, people would come there um, more than they would go to Chelsea in a way, or certain people would be. Yes, it's particularly in the evening. It's, you know, every subway in the city has a stop there uh, and a lot of people are walking around and for artists who live Lower East Side, East Village, West Village, Chelsea, you, you can walk there. And so it's a real center. And what I also like is it, it, as it evolved, it was no longer an art ghetto. All kinds of people there. So if someone's walking by and they're in another creative field, they see a crowd in front of the gallery, they might want to stop in. 
And I've always had this idealistic view that art can enhance everybody's life. That so part of what we did in the gallery was to set a position sort of against the insider professionalism of the art world. And as we all know, the art world is more and more it's a, it's a profession where there are certain rules of behavior, all this. You, you can't be, you know, like if, if I, I, I remember hearing a very important museum person talking about an artist we work with, and you don't know, I, you know if I, saw, I saw him drunk at a party, you know, we, we can't deal with him. And can you imagine, can you imagine you know, if uh, you know, they said that about Jackson Pollock after somebody saw him you know, throwing punches in the Cedar Bar? So you know, we, we tried to, you know, it's, so we had to keep things in some way business-like, but we tried to keep it more open and loose. And, and also be, maybe because of your position in Soho, you were among the first galleries and impresarios uh, to to explore the intersection of fashion and art, right, right. Um, which is maybe one of the monsters you created. No? And there yeah. are a few <laughs> that we'll talk about. Yeah, we, we <laughs> joke about I created a few monsters during the, you know, and one of them, you know, it, it, this interesting intersection we all know about of fashion, music, art, film, becoming closer and closer with the borders being blurred between these different media something I've been interested in for a long time and we encouraged artists who work in this area and encouraged filmmakers like Michelle Gondry who are interested in positioning themselves in the art world, giving them platforms, giving artists who want to make films, or you know, giving them platforms. So that, that was part of what was interesting about being in Soho where film production offices, music studios, of course all the fashion boutiques, and we invited all these people in. Uh, you know, I dodged the question of spectacle. Well, but it's coming <laughs> up again, because no? it's intimately uh, connected to, to, okay. to that intersection okay. of... Well, I love the excitement of a spectacle, and a spectacle is something that it I like an artistic project that takes on a life of its own, where say, I, I did not want to be like a more conventional gallery where you put, it, put up your show and then you wait for the reviewer, you know, that you just wait for somebody to endorse it. Uh, I wanted to create projects that had their own energy, that uh, were talked about, that brought people in. and. We started this very early on. Uh, one of our early projects, notorious project. Can we get to the letter D? Uh, sure, <laughs> yes. The letter D is for dog. D is for dog. <laughs> okay. So uh, we didn't exactly exhibit, say, a, a real dog in the gallery. We exhibited a Russian performance artist who performed as a dog for two weeks, as Oleg Kulik. And uh, I had read about his notorious performances in Moscow where he actually appeared like as a dog with collar and someone with a chain and viciously attacked uh, the spectators at art events. Very, very controversial. And I said, well, we've got to get him to New York. <laughs> and uh, so he, he had a great concept. 
he, like many artists, he was inspired by the great Joseph Boyce performance in New York in Rene Bloch's gallery in 1974. I like, I, I like America and America likes me. It was during the Vietnam War and Boyce determined he was not going to set foot on American soil on a protest. So he uh, brought in an ambulance from the airport to the Rene Bloch Gallery and never walked on the street. So Oleg Kulik had a very clever idea. Uh, he called his performance, I Bite America and America Bites Me. Um, and the same thing, we picked him up at JFK. He was already in character as a dog. He crawled <laughs> out of the terminal, crawled to the, on the parking lot, crawled into the back of the station wagon we rented. I remember <laughs> uh, Sarah Watson, who some of you know, who was our director at the time, was in the car with me and she turned around and she just, it was terrifying because he was, he was in his role that we, you know, realized that we were really on to something that we weren't going to be able to control. We um, followed his specifications, built like the perfect cell for him and we had animal trainers outfits with those kind of sleeves that if, you know, for the dog bites, you're okay. And this guy was a brilliant, brilliant performer. It was so convincing that you, think you really thought there was a dog in there, not a man. Uh, he was naked the whole time. He stayed in character. I even, one night I sneaked in <laughs> and uh, he was still there naked um, <laughs> with his wife and, uh, you know, with a, with a bowl of gruel that, he, you know, that, she, was, that she had made for him. So, it, it, this, you know, this is the kind of thing in New York, you know, the, the, you know people were talking, the word got out, and uh, the first week of the show, I opened up The New Yorker and Don DeLillo had written this remarkable short piece about the dog and the gallery. And uh, it, this project gave me a lot of insights of what you could do and about the amazing quality of the New York audience as people began coming in droves, as the word got out. You know, so a few thousand people came. And in the mid-90s, this was still a time when the gallery world was pretty insular. You know, you didn't have the kind of giant openings that you have now. So that gave us a lot of inspiration. And is this a spectacle? Is it, well, it's, it, it was a means to go beyond the narrow borders of the art world and this, just the several places that would do reviews and to connect with an audience in a bigger way. Uh, I want to ask you two things. Uh, one is, um, <coughs> can you talk about what the, the setup for Deitch projects was on a, uh, let's say, economical and, and practical? How would you invite artists and what were the conditions? Because th those were also quite unusual in relation to traditional right. galleries. That's uh, right. I don't know what letter that is. Maybe it's uh, e for economy. E for economy, <laughs> but then we have to go back a few times to economy. Okay. <laughs> well, the economics is very straight. Set for we we set a whole system. So each artist who was invited was offered, if they needed it, up to twenty-five thousand dollars as a production budget. It was very generous for that time, and. If you've been to the original Grand Street space, it's very interesting. It's uh, 
it's not that big. The whole plot is 2,500 square feet. The gallery space is maybe 1,000 square feet, but high ceilings, and somehow it, you, you can do something that appears to be big, but doesn't, it, it doesn't get overwrought, and, and it's something that's doable. So for $25,000, you could do amazing things in there. And the deal was uh, that we would, out of that funding, give the artist a studio space, assistance, materials. We put on the project, and if we sold it, uh, the money would be reimbursed, and the artist and the gallery would split 50-50. If we didn't sell it, I would just keep the project, would go into my collection. But what happened from the beginning, we actually sold these crazy projects. And we, we, I've always felt the economics of art, what you've got to do is inspire people. And so if you're, you're playing it safe, you know, sometimes you know, there are plenty of buyers for safe decorative paintings and sculpture, but if you really go all the way with somebody, you know, out of all the possible collectors in the world, there's got to be a few who are going to be inspired and say, this is amazing, I want to I be part of this. And that's what happened. Well, let's continue then with, with economy because, um, you know, I think Jeffrey is the kind of person that um, proves that Francis Scott Fitzgerald was wrong when he said that American lives don't have a second act because, in fact, Jeffrey has had a few acts and I a think few lives. I, I, I'm, I'm about to embark on the fourth, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I was saying you're probably an American cat because you have uh, more than nine lives at this point. But um, as you were doing Deitch projects, uh, you had a, a, at least a second life that I know of, which was that of uh, uh, art advisor. And, and, uh, um, and so how did that parallel economy exist okay. uh, in your own private life? And, um, in the transformation of uh, a world in which $25,000 were a big chunk of money for a production and now are probably the cost of a painting at a second show of uh, a young artist, no? Right. Well, the first monster that I created was, in a way, the, the invention of the professional art advisor. And uh, back in 1979, I went to Chase Manhattan Bank and Citibank with a proposition that they should start an art market department that would advise clients about collecting art, advise estates that had inherited art, and lend money against art to collectors for collectors, artists, and dealers. And at the time when there was high inflation and the stock market had been stagnant in the 70s. Both banks were very interested and both said, we, we want to do this. And I decided at the time to go with Citibank, was a more dynamic bank in the 70s. And I spent a decade building international art advisory department. And it, for me, it was personally, it was a framework for me to learn connoisseurship, which is very difficult to do. You know, it used to be the 
Paul Sachs course at Harvard if you were grew up if you were in the 1930s. But today, you know, it's very very hard, or even the 70s, to learn connoisseurship at a university. You really have to do it in a hands-on way through people, and that was my structure to to accomplish this. So for 10 years. I attended almost every modern contemporary art auction in London, Paris, New York, sometimes Hong Kong, Monte Carlo, and was able to get into the back rooms of all the major dealers, visited most of the important collectors, and when I started, uh, maybe I was just a few steps ahead of some of the clients I was advising. I had to uh, very fast to keep ahead of this. But after seeing thousands of works of art and all this and understanding of why does this work in an auction sell for 100,000 and then the other one that seems to look just as good sells for 200, that's how I learned connoisseurship. And I was also very lucky to connect with a few people who were interested in passing on their knowledge. Uh, like who? Uh, oh, Bill Rubin in particular who was director of the Painting and Sculpture Department of the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, I got involved with Bill because he, he was a great collector himself and was, was brilliant at the museum and himself of taking, let's say, th three paintings that were the A- and shuffling things around and getting one AAA+. Plus. Out of, out, of, uh, out of the deal. That's what he did at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, interesting for somebody to do analysis of how he built the collection when he was there. And he did it himself, too, for his own collection. So he loved talking with me about the art market and how much money could he borrow so he could buy more. And so we ended up having a great dialogue. And we had these sessions. Uh, like every other Monday night at his favorite table at Mr. Chow. And then I'd spend a week or so with him in the house in the south of France, where it was this incredibly, insanely rigorous schedule of 8 a.m. to 8.15, listen to music, 8.15 to 8.30, you can have <laughs> a cup of coffee and some talk. Then you have to be quiet, we're going to listen to more music. And it went on like this the whole day, this very, very rigorous course. How is your schedule, <laughs> usually? Very loose. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, well, see, see, I, I, I'm part of the counterculture generation, very lucky have grown up like right in the core, went to high school between 1967 and 70. So I'm like right in the center of the youth revolution. And people ask me, you know, why did you go to the Harvard Business School? You know, you're into art. And if I hadn't gone there, I, I wouldn't have had the discipline. That sort of was the boot camp that shocked me out of the counterculture mentality and allowed me to actually accomplish something. Yeah, I think this um, duality of yours is quite interesting. You know, people see you in a suit with a tie and they assume you are a sort of smooth operator. And, uh, um, and I have actually great sympathy because mm -hmm. also as a dealer, uh, you know, you had your up and down and uh, uh, it, it's not always a story of success. And I think that makes it also uh, much more yeah, uh, sympathetic. That's, that's life. Well, yeah. the, the, well, 
see, I, I've, I was introduced to a very good tailor in Rome back in the 80s, so it's <laughs> one of my indulgences. But despite the suit, I think you would agree that my outlook on art is more radical and more transgressive than almost any institutional curator. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted to quote a great quote, actually, from Alana Heiss that says, when Jeffrey was young, he was a grown-up. Now that he's a grown-up, he's actually very young. <laughs> and um, uh, <laughs> and some You can say that about Alana, too. Some interesting <laughs> facts about Jeffrey is that um, you were an artist briefly, no? I think in Flash Art right. Magazine there is some documentation of your performances which consisted in uh, starting up fights in the streets. That's street. right, that's right. And, um, and in, in there is a beautiful photo also of you, I think, in your first catalog, uh, which looks a little bit like a Bastianader. It's uh, uh, the first exhibition, and we, we'll get to the letter L. Um, the first exhibition that Jeffrey organized was called Lives. Um, it, it was in 1975, so we actually celebrate uh, 40 years anniversary, and uh, you deserve a round of applause. <laughs> 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 and most interesting, uh, not only the list of artists is quite amazing, because it's Vito Conci, Laurie Anderson, Eleanor Antin, Joseph Boyce, Gilbert and George, Onkawara, Les Levine, Dennis Hoppenheim, Adrian Piper, Andy Warhol, Anna Wilkie, and many others. Um, but the theme of the show was artists who deal with people's life, um, and I think that's a, a theme life, that life runs through... Life as an art medium. And that runs through your multiple lives. And, and so in this uh, catalog, there is this great picture of uh, uh, Jeffrey. Maybe we have an image, actually. I completely neglected the images. Uh, it's image number one. Uh, it's the invitation to, to the exhibition. And uh, uh, anyway, there is an image of you leaving to Europe the day after right. the opening. And it, it's a bit like a Bastianader moment, no? And it's probably completely fake and made up, because I, I doubt you actually left the following day, but... Um, so, you want to talk actually, about this yeah, exhibition? It actually, it, it was the day the show closed, I left. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. We can well, see also the so following So, I, I, I got out this, this card, which is so nice that Joseph Boyce, when he received it, he inscribed it to me and sent it back. So it's a wonderful trophy to have. Uh, <laughs> so, I looked at that, while ago, because I hadn't seen it in years, and realized, in a way, I'm still doing the same show. Yeah. You know, that this theme of life as an art medium, or some of the show that I aspire to do, was called Artist as Art. And so I'm, I'm continuing my project of artists who engage life in this direct way in their work. And in that sense, uh, we go to the letter W. What was Warhol's role in all this? I think when, when you opened the gallery and when you ran it for so many years, the, the model was more that of Warhol's factory in a way than, than a commercial gallery. Can you talk about your relationship with Of course, with Andy, Warhol Andy and was a great inspiration. So when I was in school in Connecticut, my, I had two Bibles. One was Avalanche magazine, and you know, looking at Vito Acconci and the body art, and that, that, that is art, that's where I want to be. The other was Interview magazine. I read every single word of Interview magazine, every issue. And we, we printed in the book something that Eric Shiner found in the 
archives and one of, one of Andy's time capsules, the Warhol Museum, that I'd written a letter to Andy to ask <laughs> if I could be a summer intern working with him. And uh, you know, it was a very, very funny letter. And uh, uh, An Andy never answered it. He just, he just threw it in the time capsule box. But uh, of course, I eventually got to meet Andy and work with him. And one of the most interesting projects I did early on was to bring Andy to Hong Kong and then to China. I, I was just in Hong Kong and China mm -hmm. last week. And that visit of Andy's made such an impact on artists there. It's referred to all the time. Well, this leads us to another word which is very complicated, which is xenophilia. So the, <laughs> the love for the other, for the stranger. And uh, it's just because we use G for gallery, and, and I didn't want to use it again for globalization. But um, throughout <laughs> your work, uh, you have always been very interested in uh, different geographies. And uh, uh, I was reading this morning uh, Roberta Smith, uh, after six months you had the gallery, she wrote that it's astonishing that after six months uh, the gallery hasn't shown one single white male artist. And uh, um, I think throughout your work you, you have always been quite uh, open to, to different uh, geographies and different people. And uh, I remember I used to work at Flash Art, um, both uh, first in Milan and then here. And uh, um, every time our publisher came back from New York, he always went to see Jeffrey, and I'm not saying this to be nice, but and once he came back, he said, Jeffrey said that everything is just about globalization from now on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it must have been 97 or something. And so we had to like, you know, catch up and talk about that in, in the Italian version of, um, of Flesh Art. But so what, where does this attraction come from? Well, or well Massimo Milano, we share something very interesting. Yeah. We, we were both exchange students in high school. Yeah. And we've talked about, you know, people ask, you know, why does Massimiliano speak such fluent English like a native? It's because yeah. you, you spent years in high school yeah. in a, in a town in Canada. <laughs> uh, well, that, that explains the strange accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was very lucky that when I was in high school, I was an exchange student first in France. And then I was, because I was so into it, the people who administered this program, they were opening an exchange program in Japan the following year. And they needed a proven student, you know, who wasn't going to crack up <laughs> to, to be, uh, initiate this Japan program. So the next year, I was an exchange student in Japan, which was very unusual at that time. It was still, 1969 was still a traditional society. It wasn't the, the Japan we know now. So, so that shaped my experience. And having of very early on European and American experiences like that, and an Asian experience. Um, so it was just very natural to have a global approach. Yeah, so it goes back deep. And also, the opening of the gallery coincided with a fascinating new trend. And this was the period in the 90s when it was opening up when it was becoming global. Um, I, I'm, I'm nostalgic for the 80s in New York. Mm -hmm. so the 80s, it was a great period for me, and it may be the last period when, without question, New York was the center of the art world. It was quite international. It meant that all the artists from Germany, Japan, China, you know, 
even Ai Weiwei came to New York in the 80s. Uh, but by the 90s, it was breaking down and you know, very important communities of interest in other places. And I think we counted up that, you know, the, the number of, I forget the number now, but it's something like, like 30 countries were represented in the first few years of the gallery. It was a very global project. Yeah, I think in the first year you showed Chen Zhen uh, right off and Montian Bunma from Thailand. Uh, who else? Um, Mariko Mori from Mariko Japan, Mori. Neri Ward from Jamaica, uh, Vanessa Beecroft from Italy. That was your first show. Do you want to? So we go to a V for Vanessa Beecroft. <laughs> I, I also have a, a, a great story about this because Jeffrey called Vanessa on Christmas Day. That's right. Uh, and I only know of another curator who called Richard Serra on Christmas Day and that was Harold Zeman in <laughs> 1969. <laughs> and uh, uh, I always thought that only a certain type, it takes a certain type of person. Uh, he helps you're Jewish, I think. Uh, or <laughs> so <Right. laughs> Zeman was Catholic. But <laughs> and um, um, yeah, so Let's talk about Vanessa. So she had the first show well, at the it, gallery. It com comes back to flash art, actually. Yeah. Because flash art was amazing that even though there wasn't an intellectual framework, a kind of vision, and it was sloppy, they didn't pay the writers on time, all this, but they were very open. And they would find very talented people with zero credentials, no PhD, no museum position, if they wanted to write, said, okay, you can write for flash art. It's $50 a review. And it just, it, it became a, a great document of, w of what was going on. So I would read it all the time, and I saw this arresting image, something I just, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. It was an image of a Vanessa Beecroft performance, it took place in a little gallery in Germany, called The Blonde Dream with girls with these really very fake blonde wigs. And I said, this is, this is fast, this is great. And I probably through flash art, I got her phone number before email, and I called her up. And I said, we're opening up a gallery, uh, first week of January, would you like to be our first show? <laughs> <laughs> And she said, you know, of course, the reaction was, no, impossible, I can't. And uh, she had a good friend, Miltos Minetas, interesting artist who I knew before. And he said to her, are you kidding? You've got to do it. You have to do it. This is going to be important. And I don't know how we did it. Cause, you know, do we have M for miracles? Because <laughs> where a lot of miracles happen. And somehow, in, in over the holidays, she had this young woman must working day and night making all these flesh-colored brassieres and garter belts and things like that for her costumes, and she pulled it off. But there's, there's another anecdote about the beginning, I want to say. So and we have also image 21 is a yeah, picture of, see the, of the first show. It was a great way to open the gallery because there was ostensibly nothing to sell. It was, and it was, Vanessa, it's this interesting combination of painting, sculpture, and a kind of reality. And uh, which I thought was a, a great way to question what we're gonna be doing. And you see 
with the silver wigs, inspiration of Andy Warhol. So it was a good way, good, very good beginning for us. But so the casting, this is, this is the second week of January, I think. It, it, uh, it's the worst blizzard in New York in years. There was a snowdrift almost to the roof of the gallery. No traffic, you know, just impassable. And you know, I said, "Oh my God, how are we ever going to? This was how are we ever going to get enough models to do this?" This was the day of the casting. Nobody would show up, and it was also it was freezing. And to my astonishment, sixty potential models traipsed through the show. And I kept saying to Vanessa, when a few were there, oh, let's, let's say, let's get them, you know, because I'm afraid more wouldn't come. No, she was very rigorous, rejected people who didn't fit her image. But you see, we had no trouble getting the full complement and attracting you know, a very uh, enthusiastic crowd. So it gave me a very good lesson uh, about the seriousness of the New York cultural world and the uh, strong desire of people to participate, to be part of it, to, and despite the snowstorm. And uh, this leads us, I think, to two other crucial ideas in, in, in your uh, modus operandi. One is the question of the audience, and uh, um, we could probably dedicate the entire evening just to this word because. Um, the public and the audience seem to be one of the, the driving forces of your work and uh, uh, maybe sometimes to the point of eroding the, the criticality of your work. And now I'm playing uh, devil's advocate. Or yeah, so w one of the important formative experiences for me is the, the, the history of discotheques in New York and clubs in the early and mid-70s. And there are a number of important formal innovations in, in these discos and clubs, but one of them was the dissolving of the barrier between the performer and the audience and the participants. Everybody was part of it. So like you didn't go to a disco and just stand there and look at the DJ. You were part of it. The DJ responded to you. And you had a kind of similar connection in the audience and the performer in the punk clubs like CBGB with you know, people running up on the stage and you know, tackling the performers, the performers jumping into the audience. And so I'm very interested, and this is a whole aesthetic trend and innovation of the, this erosion of the barrier between the auteur <laughs> and the audience and connecting it. So this is a very important thing in what we were doing. And, it, it, you know, and a lot of our projects invited this audience participation where the audience doesn't just look at the art, you, you participate in the art, you become part of the art. So I'm interested in this as, as a whole aesthetic concept. But another thing about the audience that's fascinating is when we began in January 1996, our audience was basically inside art world. Almost everyone who came to the gallery made their living somehow in the world of contemporary art. They made it, they wrote about it, 
they collected it, they dealt in it. It was a very inside thing. And I kept trying to open things up. We would have an exhibition where we would say with Barry McGee, where he comes from the skateboard subculture and the skateboarders would come uh, with someone else. It uh, brings in a whole music culture, a fashion culture. Uh, what we saw, partly from what our own active efforts, but partly just what was going on in art, we saw this fascinating expansion of the art audience from something very inside to something that's really quite big and open. And I always had this idealistic view I love the great rock bands of the 1960s. I grew up on that and love the way that Beatles, Bob Dylan could be like really tough and transgressive and very serious, but also entertaining and embracing of a large audience and inspiring for a large audience. And I always gravitated toward artists who also thought big like that, who wanted to connect who wanted to go beyond the inside. So it explains a lot of the involvement with artists, of course Warhol, but Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Jeff Koons. Is there a moment in which too much audience hurts the work of the artist or, or your own work? I mean, it, or... Uh, is there a moment when Bob Dylan does the Christmas Carol? I ask myself. I mean, we 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 are in the middle, I think, of this question. No, uh, when is yeah, too much audience? Yeah, too much? Yeah. And um, well, and okay. So this is a very relevant topic today. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of the questions you were going to ask me is what show I regret not having been able to to present at Mocha. Uh, I. Wasn't, but yes. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well. <laughs> I had a you know. Okay. Well, you know. Sorry that w we weren't able to present the great Bjork retrospective. <laughs> well, I'm on the monsters. You, you did do a Bjork show, no? Did I did. I we we did a wonderful Bjork show at the gallery uh, with Encyclopedia Pictura. We helped to produce this astonishing 3D video with Bjork. It was one of the highlights. But let's stay on yeah. the audience. Okay. When is okay. it too much of a okay. good so, thing? So see, this, this is now, and uh, you know, uh, some of you may have read the diatribes against uh, one of my favorite colleagues, Klaus Biesenbach, it's you know, raging today, reminds me of the diatribes that went on against me when I was at MoCA. And so with, you know, with Klaus, it's Bjork with me, there, uh, you know, it was James Franco, unfortunately. So for me, this is, you know, it's kind of amusing. I, I, you know, I, I enjoy this whole back and forth. It's part yeah. of what makes our world fun and interesting. But this, see, this is a fascinating thing that's going on now, that now you have very good artists, let's say, like Ryan Tricartan, where what he's doing is influencing people who make movies. Uh, I, I was having dinner with Todd Haynes and you know, we were talking about things, and he said, you know this artist? And he was telling me this, this is, for him, as a movie maker, one of the most interesting inspirations. Uh, 
Um, and then I, as you know, I did two shows with Michelle Gondry, who's basically a filmmaker, but uh, is interested in presenting his work in the context of art. So you have this situation where people who are coming from what was before considered to be mass culture, popular culture, viewing themselves is part of the art flat platform. And then artists wanting to be, say, like Jordan Wolfson, um, have many conversations. He's interested in making a feature film at some point. And so this, this is a very interesting challenge to the old-fashioned art world. And the, what I see is this sort of the elite, the more academic elite, can no longer sort of control the dialogue because there's a big audience and who responds to art that has more of a crossover quality. So I'm a firm believer that you, you know, just because art is more popular and engaging, that doesn't mean that it's not serious. Yes, I, I mean, I don't know if we want to continue. Well, I, I want to continue by uh, contrast. Uh, K is for Kunz, uh, because I think uh, there is an interesting example of an artist who is now uh, sanctified as a crowd pleaser. Um, your history with him, <coughs> particularly in the 90s, is a very complicated one, and it's a history of failures more than successes. No? Now we all think of Kunz as the golden boy that can achieve what he wants and all the production money he wants. Um, <coughs> when I started coming to New York, actually, uh, I came in 99, and uh, Kunz was having his comeback from a few years in which he was a sort of paria. Uh, he was going bankrupt. He was making you almost go bankrupt. <laughs> and uh, it, w um, it, it got such to such a point that the banks took away all Jeff's credit cards. I mean, he, he couldn't even travel. It's, it's you know, uh, he hit rock bottom, and, uh, and, uh, and it was basically bringing me down with him. Uh, at one point, it was just an immense amount. There were eleven million dollars in commitments I had, you know, to to Jeff's celebration project. But for me, it, it, people sometimes say, oh, this must have been so horrible. And see, this is, for me, this is what it's all about. It's going all the way to get behind something that you believe in. And in retrospect, it was very exciting. We really went all the way. You know, I can, it, it's a you know, whole novel, really, that can be written about this whole chapter of Jeff and Chicholina and the divorce with Jeff and Chicholina and the custody fight and you know uh, him running off with his son and then her running off with the son and you know it, it's it's an unbelievable unbelievable story but through it all he was making what I still believe is is the most significant body of artwork of any artist of my generation and that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be behind it. Uh, it you see, do you see his success now as uh, consuming the art from within? Because I think that's another criticism. Now that it's so embraced, uh, is that work still 
critically relevant or not. When it's only background for selfies, is it still? <laughs> and uh, I ask myself because uh, you know it's it's uh, it's, I it's, don't so know, it's 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 <laughs> it's so interesting. So I, I there there was a two day symposium about that the selfies. That the, <laughs> <laughs> the that the Whitney put on about during the Jeff Koons show, and one after another, well, the speakers were talking about criticality. That that's the essential ingredient of art is criticality, and is there enough criticality in the work? And they sort of got to the early work with the vacuum cleaners. And, you know, said, okay, that has some criticality. Okay, but then they they could they just they stopped when it started getting shiny. Um, <laughs> but so that was so interesting for me. That is criticality. Is that what art is essentially about? There's so many other aspects to art that you know, are very important about creating resonant imagery, about jogging your emotions in a very profound way. And you know, we can go on and on. But I think that, that that academic frame of expecting that unless it's critical, unless it's anti-capitalist or something, you know, it, it's, um, then it's not valid as art. Uh, that's not how I look at art. And now, in, in terms of you know, Jeff and all that, art is a lot about perpetual revolution. So the artist who's like the artist at the top, the top dog, you know, well, the next generation, the project is to knock them down, you know, to steal some things from them, use it in your own work, but you know, make it look like yesterday's message. And, and the history it all sorts out and finds its place. But you know, yes, that's what happens. So it's it's that we would expect the current generation is going to look at the biggest star, and say, well, this isn't meaningful to us now. We're going to do something else. But uh, I, I w it was very interesting for me to see the engagement with Jeff's work, Whitney. I love. I, I like to go to the pre-opening and see the work with without much of a crowd. But I love going and seeing how the crowd connects. Do you, <laughs> I just came up with this question. Do you see the money when you look at celebration series? What do you see? Do you see the artwork or you <laughs> saw how much money you lost or how much money you could have made or made with it? Because I think that's, now I'm being <laughs> maybe so for too me, candid, you know, for but for I think me, that's a criticism okay, towards okay, you. Okay, well, what, okay. what side I think, I think, okay, so I think people who know me well know that for years I lived in a rental studio apartment, so you know I spend enormous amount of money in the gallery, but I don't really care about money. You yeah. know, it's it's really money is really more something to do more crazy projects with. And so, no, I mean I look at I see the art. I I don't you know just it, it's, I don't think of the money at all. And in the way we program the gallery, uh, we never made commercial decisions. It's just what we thought was interesting. And luckily, I had art advisory business going, so I didn't really have to worry about selling out each show. But again, you know, it's part of this belief that if we really believe in the work, and we try to make it inspiring, we'd inspire somebody enough to buy it. I have and a story about this. I don't know if it's, uh, you say, apocryphal? Apocryphal, yes. That you try to sell um, Michael Jackson and <laughs> bubble to Michael Jackson by slipping <laughs> a note 
yeah, it, it, apartment it, it, at the Trump it, it, Tower. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it, it was, uh, as Jeff Koons said, you know, that was a bad idea. But, um, <laughs> well, so, you know, one, one of the, like, exciting sub-chapters in my life is, so, I had, when I was working in the art advisory business at Citibank, there was a retired museum director who had been given one of his former trustees and uh, clients Trump Tower apartment to use when he came to New York to show works of art. And I went up there, I said, well, this, this is pretty good. And it was much better than going up the rickety elevator, one of those 57th Street buildings between 5th and 6th, and you know, luxurious thing with an elevator man and all that. And looking at that, the art looked really great. You know, I wanted to buy it in there. And so when I started my own business, one of the longtime clients, friends, a great friend of Massimiliano as well, Doc Estiuanu, uh, he had a small apartment in Trump Tower uh, that he wasn't really using. And I said to him, how about a barter deal that art advisory services in exchange for using your apartment? I said, well, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, why not? You're welcome. So that's one of the ways I started my business with no money. So I ended up in Trump Tower, and I got a bigger apartment there. And it was a fascinating club in there. Uh, you know, it, it, almost nobody actually lives there. It's just people who use it as a pied-a-terre. So for the people who were actually there, you actually got to know them. And at one point, Michael Jackson was making an album in New York, and he spent six months in a Trump Tower apartment. And it was amazing to see him come in. He worked very hard. So late at night, he'd come from the studio with a hat and the kerchief covering. And uh, we heard these stories that in the morning, um, he would order the same coffee from the deli on Lexington Avenue as the doorman. And uh, they wouldn't see him. He would just, they would ring the bell with his little paper bag with the coffee. He would extend his hand. They would put the paper bag in it and withdraw the hand. Uh, but I was so intrigued that he actually lived there. And so I kind of bribed one of the doormen. I said, you know, would you, when you can get into the access to the apartment, could you leave this Jeff Koons catalog with the Michael Jackson bubbles on the cover with this note from me? And he said, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And, um, and so the note basically said to Michael, you know, we would like to sell to you, you know, <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this sculpture of you. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were really hoping it would happen. Uh, you know, instead, Eli Broad bought it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but I heard from Michael years later when he got interested in the work of Kehinde Wiley. And uh, some of you might have seen that Kehinde painted this spectacular work, a portrait of Michael Jackson on a horse. It's in the Brooklyn Museum now. And we were actually able to arrange this conversation between Michael and Kehinde. And Kehinde claims to have it on tape. He's discreet about it. He doesn't want to share it. But, but it's, he said he, can't, he couldn't believe Michael's knowledge about old master painting and art history. And Michael was very, very interested in this. And uh, he didn't end up buying that one either. 
that's sold, <laughs> sold to Dr. Ulbrich. But uh, I, you know, given um, my interest in the post-human, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, Michael is is sort of the model for the post-human of our time, and I'm you know, and also my interest in sort of art and life merging. I was always fascinated with Michael Jackson, still am. Let's talk about books, actually, because, um, again, I think <coughs> some people perceive you as um, just in interested in, in, in artworks, but I think one of the, your greatest contributions, at least for me as an Italian, being in Italy in the 90s, uh, some of your books were just shocks to, to, to my nervous system, and, and particularly the trilogy of um, Artificial Nature, um, Psychological Abstraction, and uh, uh, posthuman and uh, I saw posthuman in Turin in '92, um, and uh, I must say I I was completely <laughs> I was gonna make a terrible joke I I thought of my body in completely different ways <laughs> after seeing that and mm. um, I, I had a list of the artists who were featured in posthuman but I well Matthew Barney Robert Gober Gonzalez Torres Cindy Sherman Jeff Koons Martin Kippenberger, Katie Nolan, Charles Ray, Thomas Roof, Jeff Wall, Damon Hurst, Mike Kelly, and a few others that um, I'm forgetting. And, and also in that book you say, within the next 35 years, the fear that we may not be able to distinguish real humans from replicants will no longer be science fiction. Um, or in artificial nature, could it happen that the next generation will be our last generation of real humans? And uh, um, first of all, I always wanted to ask you, did you actually invent posthuman as an expression or uh, was already out there? Uh, it may have been used before, but I, yes, I, c I came up with it running around the reservoir in Central yeah. Park. Yeah. <laughs> By looking that's, at that's people running? <laughs> <or> no, it's, <laughs> that's always, always where I get my best ideas. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's uh, fascinating to see how it entered the language. And so for me, one of the goals... Maybe, uh, can I just interrupt yeah. to, to look at some of the images? So image, uh, uh, well, from 3 to 13, if you can scroll through them. So I, I'm one of the goals I aspire to doing an exhibition is to be able to have a situation where trends in art and trends in society intersect. And that's what part of what we're trying to do with post-human. And it's very interesting, so now 20 plus years beyond it, uh, a lot of this has become true, and it was fascinating to go through the triennial at the new museum that's on now, it's a wonderful show, and to see how so many of the artists are referencing post-human. So I was talking with Josh Klein and listening to him, and I said, oh, by the way, do you have a, are you aware of a show that I did some years ago? He said, oh, of course, I have the book. And so that, that gives me great satisfaction that it, it's, it's something that it's a reference for a generation of artists now. I have two of each. If <laughs> so one I can flip through and the other is... <laughs> and, but uh, let's talk about the, the, the actual 
look and aspects of these books. Uh, well, I, I was, so I love creative collaborations. For me, one of the most exciting things is to find someone I share an aesthetic direction with. And one of my great collaborators was Dan Friedman, who was uh, one of the most talented graphic designers of his generation. And he, he sadly, he died young of AIDS. But we, we had the most dynamic collaboration. And together, we invented something. We invented the visual essay. So if you look at art catalogs, even the late 80s, almost all of them are quite conventional. You know, it's, it's, there's an essay with a few little illustrations and just images of the works with some white borders. And we exploded that whole concept and created these visual essays uh, that have some text that are juxtaposed on images. But uh, it was very gratified. Uh, I got to know Urs Fischer. He was very glad to meet me because he said, oh, well, artificial nature, that was part of my foundation. Because he explained when he was a teenage aspiring artist in Switzerland, he didn't speak English yet. He couldn't read a catalog essay in an English book. And, but he got the whole thing from the images. And now it's, it just, it's become completely part of language of how art is presented in magazines. And it's, uh, I think Dan and I were among the first to do that. Is there a book by somebody else that was very formative for you? An art book? Uh, it's, well, there, there are art books I love, but it's... The one in particular or some? Okay, my, my favorite art book is, uh, it's the new New York scene with photographs by Ugo Mulas and text by Alan Solomon. Uh, if you can ever see it, it's incredible. And just great photographs, great graphic design, an interesting text by Alan Solomon, who was the curator, contemporary art of the Jewish Museum, great friend of Leo Castelli. And just in this volume, you have New York in the 60s. It's, I, I love the vibrancy of that book. I always loved that when he was shooting those photos, he was also shooting uh, Giorgio Morandi in his studio. No? And uh, so you have this picture of Andy Warhol yeah. in the factory, and then you have Morandi uh, in his tiny apartment. Um, well, we are almost running out of time, so I have to you, ask. You, ha you, have to, you have to get to Q. I have to get to Q, yes. Well, the question is, this is modeled after a terrible <laughs> talk show <coughs> in Italy. Uh, so the, the, the question is, ask yourself a question and give yourself an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to turn that around, <laughs> and it's time to ask you a question. Sure. Okay, so Massimiliano, as you know, is you know, just an absolutely remarkable curator. And you know, at his young age, it's just astonishing you've done three of the most influential biennial exhibitions, many exhibitions of the new museum, books, all this. So I don't know anyone else who has as much experience with art around the world. And those of us in New York, you know, who particularly something like me, such a New Yorker, uh, you know, someone today told me, uh, you know, it, it's all going to LA, and you know, that the New York artists, they can't even hire studio assistants, you know, they have to, 
You know, if you want to have a driver in studio, go to LA. So I wanted to ask you, where are the really dynamic situations now in art? Where in the world, in your you know, Guangzhou, you've done the Viennial there, and the, you've, you've just done this show about the Middle East. Where do you find real dynamism in art, real originality, and uh, it's where, 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 where would you want to be if it were not for New York? I want to be here because it's, um, you know, you have five museums in uh, walking distance from each other and uh, great galleries and, and I think the concentration is, uh, um, you know, un incredible when compared to any other place in the world. And I don't, I, I don't like those questions in general because in a way they point to a, a kind of idea of art as um, a tourist destination, and I know that's not what you imply, but it's not exactly how I um, <coughs> how I th feel or think. What I what I try to do is that uh, you want to show in New York, which is maybe also what you were doing at the gallery. You want to show in New York what New York doesn't have, and um, and I think maybe that's also what makes New York so dynamic. There are many people that think that way that you know there is a curiosity in New York that I haven't experienced in in any other city when we did here and elsewhere this exhibition of art from and about the Arab world I thought it was gonna tank miserably and nobody would come and um, <laughs> going back to audiences and instead I saw a city or an audience being built up by a desire to understand something that um, they weren't uh, familiar with and I think that's what makes New York, and now this sounds so cheesy, but <laughs> so exciting that uh, it's a city that experiences ignorance as an engine for knowledge rather than as a way to shut down um, against what they don't know. But we should talk about you and this also. <laughs> well, because it, it, it's the New York versus LA question. And so the letter Y, which in Italian we don't even have, is why did you go to Mocha? Well, there was a road not taken. So Massimiliano knows this story. Not not so many of other people do. <laughs> so in 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 nineteen ninety one, Kirk Varnado, who was just such a great inspiring figure, was the, Bill Rubin's successor at the Department of Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art, offered me the job of a kind of a new position of curator of contemporary art. Didn't exist there. And the main objective would be build the collection. As the collection really, it, it sort of, in a way, it stopped in the end of the 60s. And you know, what an opportunity. And so I was thinking, well, you know, I'm doing very well. You know, I just started my own art advisory business, uh, gotten used to the nice income, but I accepted. I said, great, this is what I, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm Kirk, I want to work with you. And Bill Rubin and Robert Rosenblum were both very enthusiastic, uh, went through all the interviews. It, it, was, it was a done deal. So, you know, the art world is hard to keep a secret. So, somehow this got out before the official announcement. And one of the powerful art critics 
Kirk still didn't, never told me who it was. I have my suspicion. He's went to Kirk and he's no longer with us. Yeah, yeah. And and said, you know, it's very serious. He said, if you go ahead and hire this art dealer as the curator of contemporary art, I will see it. I will be relentless. I'm not going to stop until you yourself are forced out of your job. So, you know, I think it's on. I'm I'm all ready to start this thing. And Kirk calls me. He says oh, something important. You got to come to my office. So he shares this story with me. It was terrible. It was very emotional. And uh, I said to Kirk, who some of you knew him, he was born for this position. He was just such a genius. Um, I had some other options. I said, listen, don't even worry about this. I'm withdrawing. You know, forget it. You know, it's very, you know, it was very important. You know, we don't want to disturb your program here. So I withdrew. And I've always wondered what would have happened if I stayed on with that. And uh, what I did is I ended up, you know, we actually worked together or part of this on Dacus Ioano's collection. So that became the collection that I would have built for the Museum of Modern Art. Um, kind of easier to do it for an individual. Um, so when Eli Broad approached me and said, how would you like to be director of MOCA? I said, well, I just remembered, you know, this, well, this is what, this is, I'm, this is my second chance to do, you know, to take the road not taken. And you know, I learned the lesson at the Museum of Modern Art situation, keep it secret, don't tell anybody, I only told you. <laughs> <laughs> and Massimiliano said, warn me, you cannot take that job. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm glad I did. You know, most of you, you, you found I, I got beat up by the press, but you know, it was a fascinating experience. I did some great shows. I did the, the Art in the Street show was the most popular contemporary show ever in any Los Angeles museum actually the most popular contemporary show in terms of attendance in the whole United States that year. Uh, it was incredible to see this new audience coming in, to open up the museum, and did very interesting things from taking your Linda Benglis show to give Kenneth Anger the first exhibition he ever had in an LA museum. Um, but there, there were internal issues of the museum that made it extremely challenging. Um, but I'm very glad that I was able to experience the Los Angeles scene and connect and kept my house there and uh, continue my involvement. I think this uh, leads us to, to think about or talk about um, institutions today. And I think, I mean, there are different ways to be institutional in a way, um, your Deitch project was an institution. Uh, you actually happened to name also the wrong gallery, no? which was the <laughs> first institution I was involved <laughs> with. Uh, Jeffrey found the name because he told us that he always uh, loved this expression in New York when people say, oh, it's a great show, but it's in the wrong gallery. And, um, <laughs> and so we decided to be the wrong gallery. A and then obviously the, the museums, I think, do you believe, I mean, for, um, do you believe 
change is possible in institutions of a certain size. And I don't want to sound like a, um, yeah, I do. Well I ask myself I in museums is, um, is consensus that wins or it's a radical change? And, um, and do you think you got beat up because you brought radical change or because your idea of change was not um, supported by the board or by some curators or we're playing truth here? Sure. So, <laughs> well, I, I think that just both museums and galleries in the contemporary sector, there, there's, a, there's a new model every generation or so. So kind of the model for a gallery in the 70s is different than the gallery for a model for an 80s, and same with contemporary art museum. Um, so uh, institutions like the Frick or encyclopedic museums, you know, that, that's, you get a wonderful experience in places like that. And what, what we're talking about is, is, let's say, something like the new museum. Okay, so that was a new model that was invented in the 1980s. And it was needed, it came out of the community, um, it became, because at the time, the Whitney wasn't responsive to the needs of this particular community. And so Marsha Tucker, the founder of the new museum, wasn't able to accomplish what she wanted there and found it her own place. And so it's, it's time for, again, new models with, with contemporary art. So we have the situation where see, the audience is so hungry for engagement in a new way and doesn't want to just go to a museum and see what's laid out by the curators. They want to participate. So we see with lots of things, with what goes on on the internet, people now don't want to just receive this authority, say, okay, that's it. You know, people want to connect and bring back. They want to be part of the dialogue. So, and, and there's a real need for a, a, a very interesting social, intellectual, artistic experience that people have at a museum that's not just standing in line, going around, looking at pictures on the wall, and leaving. So I think there's, I'm sure that new models are going to develop. Okay, so at MOCA, my mandate was to help build the new model because the old model was perceived to have failed. The attendance was down officially to 140,000 people a year. And then I later found out that they padded the attendance. So, and then <coughs> even some of that was just kids bussed in on school buses. So the real attendance was 100,000 people or less a year. And which meant that like for the budget, like you could be basically giving every person who came a couple of hundred dollars and said, you know, do your own art, you know. So this was a serious that situation. Would be a cool yeah, yeah, right, right. But that but that's really what was happening. It was uh, and so m the mandate was to open it up. And I ran up against a small elite who didn't want to give up 
the model that they had, even if it wasn't really working. Uh, what's uh, I have two questions. One is sometimes the new, uh, sometimes the audience actually ends up being so large that the result you get is people walking in the line, looking at pictures. Uh, so th there is a sort of um, problem built in in imagining a new type of museum and actually producing an experience that it's the same as going to the supermarket, which I think is, you know, the criticism to the current Bjork yeah, show yeah. is that, that um, the museum is actually replicating the experience that you can have at Planet Hollywood. And uh, um, so well, let's I, I don't know I how you feel about that. Okay, so let's, let's go to... And I'm not okay. saying that... Uh, but I'm curious, what is your yeah. ideal museum? Okay. If it exists or if you could build it. Okay, let, let's go to numbers... Uh, just from... Oh, images are not working, Jeff. Yeah, 102, 103, 104, 105. Images are not working, though. They're oh, they're not working? Oh, okay. All right. Okay, I thought just this monitor wasn't working. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, if, uh, th obviously, this is, it's, it's not a pleasant experience to go to the Museum of Modern Art right now and see a popular show. Um, and as you, as most of us know, that you go there, you know, a lot of time the crowds, it, it appears to be 80% tourists. People who you know you may you may not you know be able to have a, an intellectual conversation with the person next to you, but you know they it's important for them to be there. It's a life enhancing experience for them. Um, so because of these crowds, I, I think that particularly for contemporary, you need new structures, you need new kinds of buildings, uh, you need spaces that have. That where there's plenty of room, where there's room for people to have amenities to sit and talk. And so the kind of uh, museum architecture that the Starkitects now like to specialize in, that may be obsolete with you know, these chambers where it's just you know, the crowds can't be accommodated. Um, you may need another kind of situation where you can accommodate larger crowds and figure out how artworks can be experienced. Um, but to separate, like, say, when you want to see a Matisse cutout show from a, a show of, say, like, like it's at the new museum now, that can be more interactive, it's, it demands different kind of spaces. But I, I, th I think it's time to build institutions that connect with the kind of crowd you see going to a festival like Coachella that uh, goes to the projects that Alex Poots is doing in the Armory. Um, this, this is where a lot of contemporary art is going. Um, I, I think we have to end, but I have two, I have still a few letters here. Um, one is F for Fisher Spooner, and I think their greatest hit was called Emerge. That's right. And didn't they sing, you don't have to emerge from nothing? <laughs> was well, that your anthem? Well, it, that was <laughs> a fascinating experience for us. You know, it, at one point, they were on top of the most dynamic community 
creative people in New York, the best graphic designers, the best filmmakers, choreographers. It was thrilling to connect with their community. Uh, it's also a case study of how a record label can nearly destroy <laughs> the creative impulses. But that's a whole other story of uh, how when they got their million dollar record advance and what happened. And um, well, the last one would be maybe the underground, because I think that's what keeps coming back in your career and in how can you marry the underground with the overground and is that like bringing together Chicholina and Jeff Koons or is that going to work out as a marriage? Is it, is it immaculate conception or an immaculate conception? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, so the, it, it's so interesting to see the way that cultural innovation comes out of the underground, comes out of the subcultures. And so one of the things we wanted to do at Deitch Projects was to embrace these underground subcultures, whether it, it was something music, skateboarding, um, burlesque, uh, and nurturing and giving a channel for the underground to make an appearance above ground is a lot of what running an interesting gallery is about. I think that's all. Thank you so much. It's a little late. So <laughs> thank, thank you, Mr. Mariano. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.